0: your Bible to Second Timothy. We're in chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses this evening. Verse 1. But know this, that in last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambes resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Father, as we open up your word tonight, we just ask that you would pour out your spirit. And Jesus, we're here to encounter you. We're here to draw near to you. We know that if you're not with us and we're not with you, that it's just dead religion. And we don't want to be in this place where we have a form of godliness, but we deny the power God, would you intervene in our lives? Would you show us the value of time? Would you show us this concept of the last days? In Jesus' name, amen. This week, I had the opportunity to go to a nursing home to visit a a dear lady in our fellowship who's, who's there. And if you haven't spent time in a nursing home recently, it's probably good to do so, because it's very humbling, it's very sobering, and it's very much in front of your perspective, at least it was for me, that we will all face a last day. Everybody's going to get to that point that Your time's gonna come, you're gonna go home to be with the Lord, and in this nursing home as there was so many elderly people, they were approaching their last days. And there will be a last day not only for me and for you, but there's gonna be a last day for all of humanity and for the earth, that's what the scripture teaches. Christ is gonna come, there's gonna be the second coming of Jesus Christ, then he'll rule and reign for a 1,000 years After that will come the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. Then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and this earth will be burned away. This earth in and of itself, it's got a time limit. It's got an expiration date that's stamped upon it. And here, through the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying these are gonna be the atmosphere. These are gonna be the signs of the last days. And as we just read this evening, Do you think we're living in the last days? This is describing pretty much every day on planet Earth. So what's our response to this? If we know that we're going to have a last day ultimately, and all of humanity is going to have a last day, then how should we live? So let's look at verse 1. It says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. So first, we're to know this. This is something that should be on our radar in our hearts and in our minds that when these last days come, there will be perilous times. I was struck by this truth first in my heart, in my life, to realize that Christ is going to come and Christ is going to return. I think there's a real attack Upon the theology of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It just seems to be something that it's so easy to push out of our minds and push out of our perspective that Christ is going to return. We know when Christ ascended that He said, Where I went up is where I'm going to come down, He's going to descend on the Mount of Olives. And as we read this, may we be stirred again to know that time is limited. There are last days, and in the last days, there's going to be perilous times. And this word perilous, it means full of danger and risk. In the ancient Greek, they used it of dangerous wild animals, but they also used it of storms. So that's the kind of peril that's going to come in the last days the kind of peril that you would experience in a storm, the kind of peril that you would experience when faced with a wild animal. So these perilous times are now described, and I think that Timothy was facing these things in the city of Ephesus. What we're going to read, by no means are they new, but as we get closer to the end times. As we get closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're going to see these with greater rapidity. We're going to see these with greater magnitude. So the first is, for men will be lovers of themselves. And this chain, this list, its foundation is in being a lover of yourself. Do we live in a time where we see people in love with themselves? Absolutely. I mean, you could really call it the I generation. Everything seems to be focused on loving yourself and caring for yourself. We're seeing an explosion of this. Our thoughts, our actions, our priorities are all centered around ourselves. We live in a culture that exalts self-promotion. This is what culture sees as a virtue, as being valuable, Is if you promote yourself and if you are in love with yourself. However, Scripture tells us that selfishness, it's the root of all kinds of sin, isn't it? You can really boil it all down to selfishness. Murder is an act of selfishness. Adultery is an act of selfishness. Greed, selfishness. Anger, selfishness. That's why Jesus came and died upon the cross to set us free from selfishness. And as we'll study these next few verses, it's all about love. It's completely about love. And where our love is to be placed, that we're to love the Lord. We're to love God more than we love pleasure. But what we find happens to, to people in this list and so easily happens in our lives is love that's intended to be towards God and to be towards our neighbor gets inverted in and out of ourselves. So we see an inverted love where instead of being extended towards God and extended towards others, I'm extended towards myself. Kent Hughes writes this, and he says, The shift of gravity to self must be resisted with all we have. Let me read that again. The shift of gravity to self must be resisted with all we have, for men will be lovers of themselves. The next is, they'll be lovers of money. Lovers of money. The two seem to be married together. Once we're in love with ourselves, then it's very easy for us to be in love with money. Jesus told us that we can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and we can't serve money. We have to choose. Earlier on in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So you can track evil back to the love of money. Love Our money in and of itself is not inherently evil. Money can be used for good. It's a tool that can be used for good. But when we fall in love with money, and as we go through this list to allow the Holy Spirit To begin to purge our own hearts and lives. How much has the love of self gotten a hold of me? How much has the love of money gotten a hold of me? When people begin to serve money and worship money, you get really disappointed, don't you? Money can't satisfy. You don't have to have money to be in love with money. Sometimes it's just in love with the concept of maybe I'll get more money. If If I just had this much money in the bank, I'd be satisfied. If I had money then it would solve all of the issues in my marriage. Do you know that the number one thing that married couples fight over is money? Money's not going to solve communication problems in your marriage. It's probably only going to multiply it. Got to get to the root of some of those those issues. What's the freedom from the love of money? It's giving And that's why Jesus spoke so much about giving. There's so much in scripture about giving because it frees us from greed. It reminds us that everything belongs to the Lord. We find the joy in being able to be a blessing in God's kingdom. If you're not sure if the love of money has impacted our culture, just open up today's news. We've all heard of Madoff and his Ponzi scheme and how he ripped people off. But here's a new name for you. This is from USA Today and yesterday's news. It's Luis Lanzo and he stole from people. He committed fraud of 554 million dollars. That's what he's on trial for. 554 million dollars. Who did he steal from? Universities, public pensions, and retirement plans. So People thought they were giving their money, universities, pension plans, city pension plans, individual retirement plans, and he was saying, oh, this is pretty sweet right here, Luis. I'm going to put it right there. I've got a hunch, but you know why things are not working well in our country? It's because of the love of money. Inside of all of these business ventures, there's no longer a care for God and a care for people. So, Look at the problems in healthcare. You can really boil that down to a love of money. That's a huge business-making venture inside of our countries. And people oftentimes don't care about the patients. The health insurance don't care about the patients. I don't think the government really cares about the patients. I'm kind of concerned about the government making my health decisions for me as I get older and I'm not good on their budget sheet. It comes back to a money issue and greed. And I've got to have more and I've, I've got to have more. No one cares about the person. They just care about the money. And we're just seeing this all over the place. Going on, it says boasters, boasters. We want to shout out with a megaphone of what we've done. When we accomplish something, we want to get on the horn and we want to let everybody know of our accomplishments. This is a part of loving self. In Psalms 34, verse 2, it says, My soul will boast in the Lord. The opposite to being a boaster is boast in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank him for what he's done. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth for in these I delight says the lord. So if you're going to boast, boast in that you know the lord. And what boasting can we take in that god pursued me while i was still a sinner. The next thing that we see the signs of the last days. And what's interesting about this list is it's not famines, it's not earthquakes. Matthew 24 gives us those kind of signs. But the signs here is the condition of men's hearts. They'll be proud, independent of God, and dependent upon ourselves. I don't want anything to to do with the Lord. Maybe the greatest expression of pride is trying to take God completely out of a culture. We don't want him in our schools. We don't want him in our government. We don't want his name mentioned in our workplace. That's the ultimate expression of pride, isn't it? Independent of God and dependent upon ourselves and it slips into my life. It slips into our lives where there's a lack of humility and a lack of dependence upon the Lord. Blasphemers, what does blasphemy mean? It means to speak irreverently about God. This is the common flow of language in the world today is to blaspheme God. To use his name in vain. To not even think about Christ and regarding him. The ultimate blasphemy is to reject the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate blasphemy, is to reject who Jesus Christ is and what he did upon the cross. Disobedient to parents. Can I hear a yes and amen on this one? Don't we live in a culture of disobedient to parents? I'm so thankful that we don't live under the law because in the law, one of the punishments capital punishment, stoning was being disobedient and disrespectful to your parents. I would have not made it to adulthood. I can tell you that. Praise the Lord for my parents and their their patience with me. I'm really pretty shocked and pretty stunned by the cultural shift when it comes to obeying parents. And I don't think we oftentimes think it through is God's a God of authority. He sets up authority. He's the one that puts it in place. And we learn to accept God's authority in our life, starting with our parents. And if we can't learn to obey our parents, then we're going to be challenging every other authority in our lives. We're going to have a difficult time at school. We're going to have a difficult time at work. And the list just goes on and on and on because God has put authority. So it's a very important thing for kids to learn hey, they need to obey their parents. They need to honor their parents. They need to respect the position even when they can't respect the person. Our schools are filled. If you haven't spent a time at a local high school in a while, it's filled with an attitude of, I don't have to obey my parents. I don't have to listen and respect anyone. You maybe have heard of Rachel Canning. Uh, She really hit the news all throughout March because she sued her parents. Her parents told her, look, you have to honor curfew. We don't approve of this guy that you're, you're dating. Uh, and so she ran away. She says, I don't, I don't want these rules. I don't want to have to live under my parents' rules. She's 17 years old. And then she decides she's going to sue her parents because they weren't going to help pay for college. And, and so they were being unfair to her. And so it went before a judge, and there's this huge national uh, story And so she accused her, her father, and she also accused her mother. And the judge then responded to her court case and said, he called her this, he said, you're spoiled. (laughs) Uh, And that was his response to her court case that she brought. But what was interesting to me is what came out of this is she won a scholarship at Western New England University for $56,000, and it was a merit scholarship. So there's a university that awarded that kind of behavior that says, look, we like the fact that you stuck it to your parents. That's the kind of student that we want you to be. And so we have this culture of being disobedient to parents. And then parents are are looked at as being the evil ones or the intolerant ones because they won't let their middle school kid look at pornography. Are you kidding me? Like the parents are the God-given ones to look after the instruction of their children. I think we we can see this one unfolding before our very eyes. The next is unthankful, unthankful. And I find this list to be convicting. It's really easy to, to look at culture and just shoot holes in culture all the way through as we go through this list. But this list also brings a lot of conviction in our own lives. Is it a dangerous thing to be unthankful? Absolutely. Write down Romans chapter 1. Because in Romans chapter 1, we see this slippery slope of falling away from God. And one of the first things is unthankfulness. And when we're not thankful, we start moving in a direction away from God. One of the best things that we can do for our Christian life in encountering Jesus is be in the habit of being thankful. For the small things, for the big things, everything in between, for praising God for who He is and what He's done, how He's provided, the list can never be too long. But we definitely find a culture of unthankfulness. Also, unholy, unloving, and unforgiving. There's no godliness, there's no holiness, but there's no love. A lot of times when you look at interactions in culture, you go, where's the love? There's a a lack of love. There's a lack of sanctity of human life and understanding that this is a life that has been created by God. And unforgiving, not being able to forgive and extend that forgiveness to somebody else. And all of these things happen when we love ourselves. This is the fruit of a life of someone who's in love with themselves. Slanderers, destroying others with our tongues, without self-control. Well, that one, that one's there, isn't it? Again, in the news, yesterday, a gal's wedding, her name was Christina George Harvin of Conway. She got married, and before the day was done, On Thursday, she had shot and killed her niece. And I'll I'll read to you. And this is again out of USA Today. Police allege that 30-year-old Christina George Harvin of Conway used her new husband's handgun to shoot 20-year-old Caitlin Francis of Fairmount on Thursday night. Francis was shot outside a bar in New Brighton, about 30 miles north of Pittsburgh. Police say the trio argued inside the bar about who would drive. They say George Harvin, who is Christina, who was married earlier in the day, shot her niece in the parking lot at about 10 p.m. Now that's a wedding day you don't want to repeat, yeah? you? And you see the lack of self-control as that day is unfolding, and I've got to imagine that her heart is completely broken. How about some road rage? Ever been there? Gone, oh, there's a lack of self-control in my life or someone else's life is, they just fly off the handle and they start screaming and yelling. And this is an absolute true story. The Swiss have designed a device, it's called a car system technology, and it's put right inside of your dashboard and it's simply to help with road rage. And this system is constantly reading your facial expressions in the car. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as it starts to read those angry expressions, it sets off a little alarm. Beep, beep, beep. And then it goes into soothing music. I don't know about you, but I need a little bit more than that in my life. What do I need? I need the Holy Spirit. Amen? I need the Holy Spirit to provide the self-control. It's the Holy Spirit that brings about that fruit of self-control in our lives. Brutal. Brutal. Does this describe our culture? Brutal. You probably have read it. You've probably seen it. Another absolutely horrifying event in one of the high schools in our country. 16-year-old girl yesterday, Maureen Sanchez, was stabbed to death in the hallway of her high school. Reportedly, they don't know for sure, but it seems like the young man who stabbed her to death, he had invited her to the prom. She had said no. He got revenge on her. I think it was last month a young man did stabbing in school. He stabbed 20 people. I mean, we're seeing absolutely brutality in our schools. I I I think of this young girl, 16-year-old girl, all the life that she has ahead of them. And we can become so callous to these events. You can't even keep up anymore. I remember when I was in school ministry and kind of the first shooting happened, large shooting happened inside of a high school, and it was devastating. And the whole country was just on their knees and broken by this shooting that had, had taken place. And then not too long after that, there, there was Columbine here in, in Colorado. But now you literally cannot even keep up with the shootings, the mass shootings that happen inside of our schools. Something is really wrong If we can't read this section of scripture and see that we're in the last days, that we're getting closer and closer to the coming of Jesus Christ, that the gospel needs to go out, that the love of Jesus needs to to go out, there's a generation that's growing up behind us that's absolutely brutal, but it flows through all generations throughout the whole world. This is interesting. Despisers of what is good. So when we become lovers of ourselves and we get far enough down this track, we'll actually hate what's good. And are you seeing that in our culture as well? We claim that we have a tolerant culture, but we don't. The only thing that we don't tolerate in our culture is things that are actually good. Even if things that are good are not even getting on your case for what you're doing is bad just simply because it's good and it's wholesome, it's being hated, isn't it? And so we're seeing this take place. Jesus is good, but that's the one thing you can get in trouble for at your workplace if you say the name of Jesus, if you say that Jesus loves you. Well, in fact, some of you could get in trouble at work for saying Merry Christmas. I mean, that's how Far it's gotten as a despiser is good. And there's so many things that come to mind that we see taking place in this. Traitors, there's no loyalty. And we see this throughout our culture as well. There's no loyalty that you think would be there inside of families. Headstrong and haughty. This is pride manifested. When we give ourselves over to pride, we're headstrong. We won't yield to the Lord. We won't yield to anyone else. Haughty. This is swollen with conceit. It's a very descriptive word. Someone where pride is taken over and they're, they're completely swollen with pride. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So this is building. It's building to then to this final point that Paul makes and says, this is where culture will be in the last days is they're gonna love pleasure rather than lovers of God. Controlled by Pleasure. The bottom line is loving pleasure is more important than than loving God. But what they don't see is that this moment of pleasure is leading to a life of pain. Isn't that true? If you're God's pleasure, you have to sin in order to fulfill your pleasures, then it leads to a life of bondage and pain. But godliness, there is a moment of pain in godliness. It's not always easy to make a godly decision, but then it's going to lead to a life of pleasure. It's going to lead to a life of abundance as we follow and we serve the Lord. We live in a very much a pleasure-driven society with no thought to the consequences. If you're wondering about this, just look at all of the advertising slogans they're all geared towards instant gratification and pleasure driven I pulled up a few this is from a few years back you'll probably remember it Calvin Klein they said between love and madness lies obsession were they really selling jeans or what's going on here right how about Mercedes Benz here's a good one for pleasure the best or nothing the best or nothing You've got to drive a Mercedes-Benz. You've got to have that, that pleasure. Grand Theft Auto, the very violent video game, says, live in your world, play in ours. That's a very sneaky campaign, isn't it? Just have your pleasures in this video game world. D- Diesel Jeans, which has very seductive uh, advertisements, their ad campaign is this, be stupid. That's their ad campaign with very seductive advertisement. You don't have to be a genius to figure out what they're saying there. Burger King, which is a little closer to home, says, have it your way, why not? You know, a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of bacon cheeseburger, I deserve it. Have it your way. The advertising slogans are all built upon pleasure. Can this sneak into our lives? Absolutely. Have our pleasures become more important to us than God? So, do you see all the places that love is being given? Love to self, love to money. Love to pleasure, but the appropriate place for love to be given is to God. God is love, and he's given his love to us so freely. We're going to find the best life possible, not the easiest life possible, but the best life possible in loving God. That's the appropriate place for our affection. That's the appropriate place for our love. Church, guard your heart for your love for God. Guard it. The world, our flesh, everything's trying to attack our heart to where we won't be in love with the Lord. We go on in verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So now we're getting to see that in these last days, there's some false teachers that propagate this message. And they have a form of godliness. They're religious, but they deny its power. And when we see people like this, and from such people turn Away. The religious, the Pharisees, the scribes, they had a form of godliness. The people of the day would look at the scribes and the Pharisees and go, oh, those are the godly ones. But yet, they arranged the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They were the murderers of Jesus Christ. They were good at the exteriors of a relationship with God, but they never encountered God. And I know that we've probably heard this before. We say there's a big difference between religion and relationship, right? But how many times in our lives do we settle for religion without encountering Jesus? On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible and we're in Acts. And this last Wednesday, we studied Acts 9 and the conversion of Saul. And Saul was very religious. He was a Pharisee as well. He had it down of going to church, memorizing scripture, trying to be a righteous person according to the law. But you know what Saul never had in his life is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And until you encounter Jesus Christ and continue to encounter Jesus Christ, there's no power. The power is not in religion. Hear me out on this. The power is not in coming to church in and of itself, There's not a transfusion of power by simply taking up space in a sanctuary, by being in a small group, by being in men's ministry or women's ministry. Where it becomes powerful is in in worship, we engage Jesus Christ. I'm not just listening to songs and listening to someone else sing to the Lord, but I'm singing to the Lord. I'm drawing near to the Lord. It's one thing to hear God's word, and it's another thing to interact with God's word, to allow God's word to impact us, convict us, change us, to bring us to Jesus. Church, it's all about Jesus. Amen? And this reminds me, it challenges me, it convicts me, how much am I settling for religion and how much am I encountering Jesus? Of this last week, how many times did we encounter him? How many times did we draw near to him? How many times did we hear him say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And allowing him to speak into our lives. We don't want to be in this place where we have a form of godliness, but we're denying the power. Encounter Jesus. This describes these false teachers a little bit in verse six. For of this sort, are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. False teachers have a false message and they prey upon the weak. These false teachers know, oh, these women are home without their husbands and they're in a vulnerable place. They're just longing for someone to talk to. So I'm just going to creep in there and I'm going to find my way in and I'm going to pray upon them. You'll find that a lot of times, false teachers, what will they do? They'll prey on the elderly because they're vulnerable. And they'll come in and they'll find a way to get their money. And so you can look at the fruit of these false teachers. They're truly wolves in sheep's clothing. Verse 7, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. These false teachers and society as a whole, as it gets close to the end times, they love the study. They're always learning, but yet they're never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We may be the most studied people of all times. There is more information that's available to us than any other group of people at any point in history. It's at this click of a button, the touch of a screen, all of this information comes up. It kind of takes the fun out of life in some ways. It's like, well, I wonder what the weather's going to be Monday. Well, let me check there you go. I got it. It's right there. Well, what do you think about this, this, and that time? And well, what really happened in World War II? And well, well, let me look. I'll Google that for you. There's no room for the imagination because I'll Google it, right? And we live in this information age, but do we have more knowledge of the truth, the truth being Jesus Christ? We may have less knowledge of Jesus Christ than any generation prior. This word knowledge in the Greek, it's epinosis. It's in the New Testament a lot, and it speaks of intimate personal knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that a husband and wife have of each other, and they don't have this intimate and personal knowledge of the truth of who God is. You can learn about Abraham Lincoln, but you're never going to know Abraham Lincoln, and it's one thing to learn about God, and it's another thing to know the Lord to talk the scriptures over with him, to walk with him, to be the friend of God, to allow him to be our Lord. Here's the example of two false teachers in verse eight. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Who's Janus and Jambres? This is the only time that they're listed in scripture, we know that there are some men that resisted Moses, so we go back to Moses' life and Moses' story when he confronted Pharaoh, and who were the ones that resisted Moses? It was the magicians. So the common thought is that Janus and Jambres were some of these magicians that tried to counterfeit the miracles that God brought. And when you go back and you read Exodus, they were able to counterfeit some of the miracles that Moses and Aaron did only to a point. There was a demonic power behind these magicians. And that's still true today. There's some that will operate in a powerful way, but it's in a demonic realm. But ultimately, it came up short Aaron and Moses' snakes, remember as they dropped the rod and it became a snake, they ate the snakes of Janus and Jambres, symbolizing the power of God over the power of Satan. But there's still people like Janus and Jambres that they actually have an agenda towards resisting the truth. It's one thing to struggle with loving yourself, to struggle with the love of money, to struggle with boasting and pride. It's another thing to give yourself over fully to it and then try to lead other people away and to resist the truth. Their minds are corrupt. They've disapproved concerning the faith. And verse 9 says, but, they're pro- they're, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Give it time, the false teachers will identify themselves. There'll be no progress, there'll be no spiritual growth, there'll be no spiritual effectiveness. All will be able to see. Just like Janice and Jambries were exposed, false teachers will be exposed as well. There's a little bit of hope here, and before I lose you, there's a lot of hope here. Look at verse 10 quickly of chapter 3. But you have followed my doctrine, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. And we're going to get into this more next week, but please read ahead. Timothy's swimming in a different stream. He's not in this list that we've just described. He's following the doctrine that Paul gave to him, which was Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's in the word of God. Next week, please don't miss next week. I think it could be one of the more important. Actually, it's going to be two weeks out because Potter's Field Ministry will be here next weekend. But we're going to look at the inherency of Scripture. Look down at verse 16. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Is there anything more contested in our time that is God's Word inspired, is God's Word God breathed. If there's one thing that we need to be convinced in, it's the power of God's word. And God's word is going to combat what we just read this week. I think we can agree with all confidence that we are living in these last days. That the coming of Jesus Christ is closer than it's ever been before. I don't know when it's going to be. No one knows when it's going to be. But God wanted us living with the expectation of his coming. I feel that in our hearts, that is really being challenged, and there's some tonight, even after this study, where you're not convinced of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and you need to be. It's an important doctrine. It's important teaching. You can't just leave it off to someone else. It's important that you believe it. This is Romans 13, 1 through 4, and it shows us how to respond to the fact that time is short. I'll read it to you. It says, And do this, knowing the time. So if you know the time, this is what you're to do. That now it's high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. And that's true for all of us. We're closer to heaven than we've ever been before. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and junkness, Not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's encountering Christ. Putting on Jesus Christ. Jesus, I know you died for me and you rose again. I'm a new creation. I know time is short, so I'm putting you on today. And I'm not gonna make any provision for the flesh. Quit feeding the flesh and giving opportunity for the flesh. The great commandment is the antidote to the inversion of love. What is the great commandment? Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is not intended to be inward, not to be self-focused, but to be focused towards the Lord, to be focused towards others. I'm excited to live in the times that we do, and this is why I think they're very important times. It could be our generation that Christ raptures the church. And if it's not our generation, then it could be the generation behind us. And as things are getting dark spiritually, I know that God wants to do a revival. God wants to reach people. And now's the time to press into Jesus Christ and to press into his calling for your life. And the Lord wants to use you. I think an appropriate response to this section of scripture is prayer. We can complain and we can talk till we're blue in the face or we can get on our knees before God about what we see in our culture. It just so happens, and it's not a coincidence, it's God's working that this Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. And let's take time this week, not just this week, but every week, but we've got this week in front of us to pray for our country. The things that disturb you, pray about it. Let's pray for these high school students that are facing such brutality. Let's pray for our kids. And we're going to gather as a church on Thursday, National Day of Prayer at 630, right here in the sanctuary, and I'd ask you to join me, to, to, to make the time to come together and pray because I believe that prayer is powerful. If we had an audience with the powerful people of the world to bring before them our concerns for the world, we would probably take it very seriously. Well, we have an audience with God. We have an audience with God. We can come before him and bring our prayers before him and say, Lord, would you work in our time? Would you work in our lives? And also the scripture tells us that judgment starts in the house of God. And so as we pray tonight, let's allow the Lord to work in us because I know there's many things on this list that I struggle with that I don't want to give myself over to. I don't want to give myself over to these things. I want to give myself over to the Lord. And I know that's true in your life as well. So let's pray.